Welcome to the Big Fan Theory. Dimitri, welcome to the Big Van Theory. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, real honour to have you here and another milestone in a podcast because you're the first non-wine trade person um, we've had on. Um, so as, as background, I wanted to get you on as a trade expert, but if you can give us like 30 seconds telling us who you are, what you do, um, and why you're qualified to talk about what we're going to talk about. Sure, though I don't know about that last part uh, until I hear your questions. Uh, my name is Dmitry Grosbinski. I run a consultancy called uh, Explain Trade. I was an Australian trade negotiator uh, for a number of years. Um, and one of the ways that I make my bread is I train the trade negotiators uh, and officials of the United Kingdom, the devolved administrations and countries around Europe. To give a, a bit of background, there's been a lot of conversation on things like Twitter um, and in the press on Brexit. And of course, it has a big impact for the wine trade. I think we voted 98% Remain. So it was very much a, a, a Remain dominated um, trade. But um, just because the way we've always done things has been one way doesn't necessarily mean it's the right way to do things. So I'd, I thought it would be worth having someone outside with a lot of trade expertise can explain um, in detail what a lot of the terms mean, um, what they think the future means. Um, and then also, I suppose, to start, I don't want to rehash any of the arguments for or against because you know it's, it's redundant we know we're there we are where we are um but i do think it's worth asking when a project's completed or when something's happened um now we're a month into it what of the claims about brexit have come true uh, were there any obvious lies from the beginning um or were there any lies that by a freak chain of events have turned out to be the truth uh, where do you think the big uh, claims predictions etc of brexit um lie now and do you think those are valid questions to ask so that's a, that's a, that's a great question i think what's proven true as was effectively inevitable is that it is very very disruptive to take a relationship a complex trading relationship like the one between the european union and the united kingdom and to slap a border in the middle of it, while also overnight effectively unwinding a lot of the arrangements and rules around how that worked. Uh, industry, including uh, yours, have evolved over the last couple of decades, operating under the rules as they've existed. Um, and a lot of those rules made certain movements, certain kind of business functions, uh, fairly painless. Uh, compared to almost any other border in the world, supremely painless. Um, so something that was predicted from the start uh, was that, hey, if you tear all of that apart, even if you do get a free trade agreement, you're going to find that massively disruptive. And I think a lot of those kind of stories and the things you hear on Twitter and the things that your members who trade across borders with the European Union are experiencing is evidence of that. Um, on the sort of pro-Brexit argument, um, the the important thing to kind of remember is, I guess it's early days, but the argument was about the importance of the United Kingdom having control over these policies. It was much more rarely about any one specific policy that the United Kingdom planned to roll out. So the United Kingdom has at the moment traded a whole bunch of disruption for the ability to independently 
make decisions in a range of areas, but it hasn't made any of those decisions yet. So to the extent that the glorious future post-Brexit was promised, it hasn't yet materialized, but the government really hasn't used the freedom that it kind of won through this referendum to do anything. Um, now, it's I can't, I can't rule out that that freedom will allow the UK to do all sorts of things. I can't imagine what any of them would be. And most of the things that are kind of bandied about, whether they're free ports or um, sort of free trade agreements with the United States, probably wouldn't be that significant. But at the moment, the the kind of the goal was freedom. The freedom has been attained and it's just not clear what they're going to do with it. Now, in, just to follow up from that, in terms of not being bound by rules, a lot of the EU's rules were on um, regulatory compliance, things like that. Even if we've left, are we still kind of de facto bound by them, even if it's not in a de jure sense? Um, that's, is, is that an accurate understanding or does it really not work like that? So when it comes to regulations and trade, it's really important to separate it into kind of two baskets based on whether the regulation that you're talking about affects what the final product is when it crosses a, a border or uh, affects how competitively it's made, basically how expensive it is to make in all of the ways that don't affect the final product. So when it comes to, for example, regulations around food safety or wine safety labeling uh, of wine, for example, um, there, if you want to sell to the European Union, it doesn't matter what freedom you have in the United Kingdom. If you want to send something to the EU, which is your huge, huge market next door, you have to comply by those standards. So that hasn't changed. What's changed is that the UK has regained some flexibility to change things like labor and environmental provisions that don't really materially affect the wine at the end. You can't test a bottle of wine at the border for what the minimum wage in the United Kingdom is um, uh, and kind of determine that. Um, so they've, they've regained the ability to, to fiddle with some of that a little bit more, um, but that that's substantively different. So the United Kingdom is still, to the extent that it wants to trade with the EU, still bound by a lot of those standards you were talking about because they just have to be to sell to that market. And that market is so big, it's it's you're not going to run half a factory that manufactures to EU standards and then half that doesn't bother. It doesn't make sense. So a lot of businesses, uh, a lot of wine producers, I think, which have Europe as a target market will just de facto follow EU rules because it just makes sense. Um, but perhaps what will change is as the UK fiddles with its labor and environmental rules, there you'll see some divergence. Though I would kind of caveat with saying the UK's rules around environment and labor, especially environment, are generally pretty good and well above the EU average anyway. So I don't know how much of a change you'll actually see. Now, one of the questions people keep asking, generally in a very shouty way and probably don't even want to know what the answer is, but what are the major benefits of Brexit? I know you said some of them we haven't materialised yet. It's far too early to see. Are there any obvious benefits in the short term? Um, are there any, and, and in the longer term, are there any that you see applying to the drinks trade? Um, what are the reasons to be optimistic? Well, for, for some of your producers who are in the United Kingdom, it's gotten a lot more annoying and expensive to get a bottle of French wine 
into the UK than it was a month ago. Well, a month and a half ago. I mean, that's that that is an example. <laughs> is that a benefit? I, <laughs> I mean, it's 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 so so trade is uh, is always a winners and losers conversation. Anything that happens in trade policy, there are people who win and people who lose. Um, in this case, the border has become more painful to navigate, more expensive to navigate. That that is an advantage for uh, your producers who primarily cater to a domestic customer base, for example. Um, and it is a disadvantage to those of your colleagues um, who are exporting into the European Union. That's uh, as an example. Um, it's also, of course, uh, I suppose, a uh, it changes the calculation of those who are importing wine, whether perhaps they, they go with a with a UK uh, with a UK producer instead. And so for them, it might be a win, it might be a loss. It changes. I think also um, once this COVID nightmare is finally over, the United Kingdom government, which will be very keen to make Brexit a success story. Um, or, or at the very least, mitigate some of the, the obvious damage, has some pretty strong incentives to use the power of the Treasury, um, to use the power of regulatory authority to try to make things easier for British businesses, um, whether that's in the form of changing, um, changing the way zoning works, changing the way approvals work, uh, direct subsidies, fiddling with the tax code. So th there's almost never been a better time than coming soon to approach the government if there's some form of domestic regulation that hasn't really been working for you and say, hey, we could use a bit of help here. We are a struggling British business or we are a sector that could be doing much better if this wasn't in the way or if we got a little bit of support for government in this way. So that, I think, is a is a side benefit in terms of actual trade policy. Uh, unfortunately, everything we know about economics and everything we know about sort of how trade works suggests that it's a good idea to integrate more with your neighbors and it's a bad idea to tear up that integration. So from that perspective, there aren't a lot of trade upsides, um, but you know, I'm always really careful to say I'm not, I'm not a citizen of the UK or the European Union. I don't have any view on the broader Brexit project or these questions of sovereignty, freedom of movement. I can just call the trade part of the picture as I see it. And unfortunately, that doesn't have too many upsides. Yeah, I was hoping you might be a bit more optimistic than that, but I don't know what I was expecting, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, well, there's a few questions I want to ask a bit about that, but that leads kind of nicely into um, the coverage of Daniel Lambert's wine company, um, which made it into the FT. I think even you retweeted it. I think it was on the BBC. Um, that was pretty broadly covered by most papers. Um, I, I've, I'm not sure about the, the Brexity ones. I imagine the Daily Mail said it caused cancer or something. I didn't read it. But what do you think um, the coverage of that was like? Do you think it was fair? Do you think it was accurate? Or was there anything covering it um, that, that you thought was was missing from a trade point of view? And again, I'm, I don't want to stress, I'm not talking about Daniel's business here particularly. I want to talk about the way that um, the media covered it rather than his business model particularly. Yeah, so I think um, one, I mean, broadly, I think the, the, the coverage was generally fair. He shared his story and his experiences uh, dealing, dealing with Chief um, and dealing with effectively new customs procedures and the fact that that's 
um, like basically how much he was struggling to navigate the new bureaucracy uh, at the border. And I actually believe, I think he, I believe he's an importer. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 So, so one thing that was missing from that story is the fact that the United Kingdom hasn't fully brought in. Currently, there's about a, a four to six month period where the UK government has provided an on ramp to customs for importation, where it's basically not enforcing customs rules at the border to the same extent it will eventually. The European Union brought everything in from basically week two. Uh, they were a little bit, they were partially relaxed in week one. And then from week two, it's basically like the the French-UK border is exactly the same as every other EU border. The standards are the same. The UK has deferred a lot of procedures, allowed companies to file certain documents like up to six months later to defer payments, that kind of thing. Um, so if, if anything, um, he, Daniel's not, not yet facing potentially the 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 full the full gamut of what's to come but i think it was a a, a fairly um uh a, a fair kind of uh communication of what he's going through the one thing that i think i don't know if this would have been constructive but it would have been worth noting is that a lot of what he was talking about was about the difficulties of figuring it out rather than the costs of even once he's figured it out, once he's fully au fait with all of these procedures, and once he gets all of the help he needs, he's still going to be paying more in terms of work hours and money to navigate this process than he used to. And that's kind of the long-term part of the picture, because that's not a teething problem, and that's not about implementation. That's never going away, and businesses need to understand that. So, we're, I mean, the wine industry is 99% import-based. So is that, that's obviously going to be the same across the board, I'm guessing. Um, is there anything people can do to try and mitigate that in the way in? And I know from speaking to a couple of other comparable importers to Daniels, they say that they don't do their own chief paperwork. They pay their hauliers to do it or someone else to do it. Would you advise SMEs to try and tackle the paperwork and other stuff themselves? Or do you think people should just build into a cost to get... Um, uh, an external company to do it just in general for for trade not necessarily for daniel's company but look obviously this is a this is a bespoke decision for each company based on the, the calculations and what have you um i would certainly not advise doing it yourself the first time if it is absolutely critical that your that your shipment arrives on, on time it is basically it you you, you don't want your first experience with this system to be the critical one. And you don't want to be doing that process unsupported. Um, depending on the complexity of your business, so how big the variety of different things, wines, I suppose, uh, or, or alcohol that you import, um, it, it's possible that maybe you only need help once. So you see at the um, you have somebody walk you through it the first time you pay that company and then basically you see what they've done and then for your next shipment you just change basically the names and the prices um, on the on the forms and you're able to do that yourself. That's something you might be able to do if you're frequently importing things basically of the same of the same type that fall under the same tariff lines and um, that require the same kind of documentation. Um, if you, if your 
a much more complex importer, if you're constantly throwing in mixed shipments and so on, it might be a lot more difficult. Um, and it might be that you do need kind of regular outsourced support. Um, there is a hope that right now that support is a little bit hard to come by and quite expensive um, just because nobody in the United Kingdom has had to do this for the EU for like 30 years. Um, and the industry doesn't like doesn't just pop into existence overnight. So over time, hopefully the cost and availability of support is going to, the cost will drop and the availability will increase. Um, but but at the moment, it, it's it's obviously quite expensive and can be quite hard to come by. What do you think the outcome of increased bureaucracy for SMEs is in general? Um, do you think consolidations in the market are inevitable? Um, and I suppose going on from this, we've got a load of red tape at the moment. It's going to get even worse in June when a load of other forms and other bits come in. Um, what is the solution to it apart from joining the EU again? Um, do you think we're going to see? I mean, I know, and there's people saying that we probably will within five or ten years. I think that's. Yeah, I think that would be um, unlikely and a bit pointless. But how think how likely do you think um, closer integration with the EU is going to get? Um, and if so, what was the point of Brexit? Yeah, I mean, I, I can't really speak to the second to that last part <laughs> of the, the question. That that's for the the British public to to decide. Um, uh, as to as to your question, um, if you look at generally how internationally uh, these uh, having hard borders in the way ha has changed uh, businesses, what you tend to get is um, a a decrease in the number of small businesses that are sending individual um, or sort of bespoke consignments across a border and having to deal with that themselves, and um, and a greater preference for kind of bundlers and wholesalers that can, through economies of scale, mitigate some of those some of those border costs. It is much less faffy to send a truck with 500 of the same wine bottle than it is to send the exact same truck with 500 different wine bottles. That is that is simply the, the nature of the that is simply the nature of the base, the nature of the bureaucracy, um, which means which creates a preference for large firms sending sending things in bulk across borders or consolidating in other ways, not moving until they have a shipment, having um, in-house uh, customs and logistics uh, support to to take some of that burden off and to decrease the cost of outsourcing it. Um, whether that means consolidation among the actual producers or, say, importers, um, not necessarily. It might be that effectively there is going to be new business types where there is effectively a wholesale importer sitting just on the UK side of the border who kind of sits there as a middleman. And instead of buying from that winery in you know, Cote you the wholesaler buys from the winery in Cote handles the paperwork and then charges you a little bit more and you buy from them rather than buying directly from the from the French producer. Um, so, so, so that might be how business evolves. Um, I would not personally expect negotiations and discussions with the European Union to significantly improve on the status quo of the situation. Um, that's that's my honest assessment. Um, there is 
only so much both sides are willing to do. Um, at the end of the day, both sides need to know exactly how much you're bringing in, of what, how much it costs, what tariff line it should be in, and to make sure that it has all of the appropriate accompanying documentation, whether that is a rules of origin form to prove that it should be tariff exempt or the right kind of documentation to prove it is safe for consumption um, in the target market. All of those things aren't changing. Um, they're here to stay. And while there might be some um, negotiated sort of facilitation and customs cooperation measures that will make some aspects of that a little bit easier. Uh, on the whole, I think it is what it is, and that should be the operating assumption. So there's a couple of follow-ups to that. I mean, you were quite complimentary about the EU, the, well, both negotiating teams sort of around the Christmas time. Um, I don't know if that was just Christmas cheer or, or in general, but um, certainly a lot of your tweets seemed to be, and it, and it was, thank God, we got some kind of a deal. Um, how well, in general, do you think the negotiations went? Um, and I know you say the status quo won't change. Do you think that the tone might soften um, rather than the stuff that's been going on with vaccines in Northern Ireland and Christ knows what else in the last week? Yeah, so I'm, I'm generally quite complimentary of the trade negotiating teams, which isn't necessarily to say I'm complimentary of the mandates they were working under. Um, the United Kingdom especially uh, sent their negotiators in with quite a narrow and specific set of marching orders, which were, listen, eliminate all tariffs if you can and give up as little sovereignty and as little policy space um, as you can in order to secure that, oh, and go and do something on fish. Um, those were effectively the UK's marching uh, orders of the UK negotiating team. And the outcome pretty much does that. It eliminates those tariffs. There are no tariffs with the EU on basically anything, um, provided uh, you satisfy the rules of origin criteria. Um, and those were their marching orders. Anything, um, a lot of the problems that, uh, say, your your industry's facing, that a lot of industries are facing, um, were, never, were never something that could be addressed through that mandate. So customs formalities, free trade agreements don't fix customs formalities. If anything, they make them worse by introducing this rules of origin requirement if you want to take advantage of the lower tariffs. So they couldn't do that. On the kind of regulatory standards and things, um, they could have maybe done a little bit better, but generally speaking, uh, when the, the European Union says that if you want us to um, automatically accept your standards as being good enough, you have to sign up to our standards. Um, and the UK was very much unprepared to do that, and that was the mandate from the government. So I'm, actually, I'm fairly complimentary of they did the job. Um, it's worth noting that the European Union never eliminates all tariffs in a free trade agreement. This is the first actual free trade agreement the UK has ever done that's done that. So that that's laudable, and I was sort of complimentary about it. But I hope I was equally clear on Twitter and in about a thousand media interviews that there were some strict limits to what an FTA, a free trade agreement, could do, and that most of the pro most of the reasons why, from a trade perspective, it's a really bad idea to to leave the single market and customs union were because a single market and customs union is so much better than a free trade agreement could ever be for traders moving things across borders. 
Now, I wanted to go back to something you mentioned about um, people uh, more likely to bring in in bulk as a result of um, the increased bureaucracy. Do you think there could be a benefit in terms of environmental impact of this? Because there was a move towards that in the wine trade anyway. I think like 80% of Australian wine brought in is bulk. Um, it's definitely greener to do that. Do you think that's likely to continue across, uh, well, not just drinks, but for everything? Is that is that something we can be kind of optimistic about? Uh, perhaps. Uh, I mean, it's, it's really hard to know um, uh, what's, what's kind of going to happen um, in terms of how supply chains will, will, will shift. Um, certainly, I think when you combine this greater preference for bulk and greater preference for maritime transport with the fact that the sea freight industry has basically set a target of being carbon neutral in the next few decades. So if you kind of put those two together, then potentially you you, you do get a, a climate and environmental benefit um, flowing from that because a business model where you just kind of throw 65 different wines into a van and then drive it from from Bristol to burn um, probably won't work anymore. And so it discourages those kind of movements. With that said, I'm not sure that the transportation of wine uh, is why the polar bears are dying. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it's a, uh, it, 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 it could well be an upside. I, I'm not sure it's the, the decisive one. Cool. I'm trying to look for any silver lining here I can, to be honest. Um, but right, now we're going on from um, the FTAs uh, that you mentioned, how do the rollover agreements that we have in place work? Are they all akin? What does fully ratified mean on the government website when it explains it? Um, and will our, so for instance, uh, lots of people, we, we import loads of Chilean wine, lots of Chilean producers and, and big companies were um, perfectly fine about Brexit because they thought it didn't affect them. Is that in actuality, what's going to ha what's happened? Um, how do the uh, the rollovers um, change trading? Yeah, so so for for goods and uh, importers uh, like like you guys, the the rollovers are pretty similar to what the EU free trade agreements were before. Um, so on goods, what most of these rollovers have done is basically pretty much copy pasted across the, the previous agreement where effectively if previously they were saying that Chilean wines can enter tariff free or at a lower tariff into the European Union as a whole, the rollover will say, well, now they can enter into the United Kingdom under those those same conditions. Um, the Where the free trade agreement rollovers haven't always kind of quite matched up is in areas like services, which don't necessarily apply um, to the kind of trade uh, that your colleagues do. The the difference, though, of course, is um, the now Chilean exporters will have to kind of if they've if they've shipped something to the United Kingdom, right? Then then they want to move it into the European Union too. They will effectively have to cross two borders. Similarly, if they if previously they only had to deal with one set of border bureaucracy, so they could, for example, land their entire shipment in Amsterdam and say, okay, now it's inside the protective bubble of the UK Customs Union. We've done our customs paperwork forms, and now it can sit in a warehouse, and then we can send it to importers as they arise with no, no paperwork basically whatsoever. We just load it up onto a van and drive. 
the one thing is they can no longer do that. Um, if you want, if there is a bottle of Chilean wine sitting in a warehouse some somewhere outside Dusseldorf, then in order to get it to a publican in London, you will have to import it in a way you wouldn't have had to before. Um, but other than that, the the rollover should be should be fairly uh, fairly similar and consistent. And if you were importing from Chile before. Um, as a straight straight to yourself in the United Kingdom pre-Brexit, then with the rollover, you should probably be uh, pretty familiar with the process and nothing should massively change for you. How much of a benefit do you think CPTPP, is there a catchy title for that, by the way, in the trade thing? It's a bit of a mouthful. Um, but yeah, do you think there's, um, do you see that being a great benefit? Because it includes things like Chile with we already got a free trade agreement with um, Oz. We already had um, zero tariffs, I think, even though there wasn't an official deal in place. Japan. I mean, do you think there's how much of a benefit do you see it being for, for your sector? Not much. I mean, I, I mean, honestly, a, a entering into the, there are some solid reasons from a sort of geopolitical perspective and from a um, from a perspective of integrated supply chains and things like manufacturing. And to some extent, services for for joining the CPTPP, it's not it's not a terrible idea to explore it. Um, but as you said yourself, the the United Kingdom already has either trade agreements or is in the process of negotiating trade agreements with most of the major parties in the CPTPP. Um, so, is are you going to suddenly enjoy? Um, a whole bunch of new access to their markets. No. To a whole bunch of new markets. No. The tariffs are already pretty low. Are you going to, uh, are your importers suddenly going to be able to import tariff free from a whole bunch of major wine producing markets? Probably not. Um, and as you said, you've already got the sort of, I think it's the viticulture agreements with the, with Australia rolled over. So you've, accepted one another's procedures as safe so it doesn't do much on the regulatory front that doesn't mean they shouldn't do it it's just for your sector in particular is it likely to be hugely significant probably not um the one minor caveat to that is that people sometimes talk about this through kind of 16 dimensional chess where they say right okay the united kingdom joins the cptpp and then the U.S. rejoins the CPTPP, and that way the United Kingdom gets a free trade agreement with the U.S. without having to negotiate one bilaterally, where it would be a, in a one-on-one situation, it's the weaker party, but here it would have 11 countries backing it up, including big ones like Japan, and so we could get more out of the U.K. than we otherwise would, and we wouldn't have to give up as much. Um, so if you kind of follow that chain across, and there's some really big assumptions um involved in that maybe you eventually get some some better access into the u.s market but that's pretty long-term thinking and far from certain are there anything similar that that we should probably be paying attention to not necessarily just from a drinks perspective but from just from an economic point of view um as i remember some of your tweets a while back saying that now britain won't be playing with the big boys but will be nimble enough to be one of the big ones in the middle kind of tier of countries um and can look at developing markets um what sort of economic um movement do you think we'll see and what sort of trade agreements do you think we'll see on the on the horizon so so very honestly my my kind of recommendation and thinking tends to be that um, the kind of trade policy that gets all the press, so these kind of big free trade agreements, 
um, probably aren't where the value's likely to be for the United Kingdom in terms of putting it, its weight. They'll continue to do them, and there's nothing wrong with doing that. But especially for your sector, is it likely to change any of your lives? Probably not. Um, but where there is a huge uh, kind of bit of potential work to do is in what's called trade promotion. Um, so building brand UK, um, building... Um, building brand UK both as a, for example, a, a tourism destination or a sort of wine holiday destination for your sector, um, uh, for for your the, the few members of yours who are exporters, building the the reputation of um, Great Britain and Northern Ireland produced um, wines and liquors, you know, uh, all these all these kind of things. The government has a role to play in that, and where it chooses to put its emphasis can can make a difference. Um, so I think there's a there's a big part um, to, to be paying attention to there and making sure that to the extent that the government can be a champion for you abroad, they know that you want them to be um, and they know that that's somewhere they should put their focus. Um, so that's kind of in the first instance. And in the second instance, um, being being really clear and transparent and vocal with the government about specific implementation challenges that you're facing. Um, we were we were talking about Daniel's Daniel's kind of thread before um, and some of the challenges he identified. And while some of them, as I said, are completely immovable, some of them were literally like the chief hotline isn't staffed adequately to help him. Um, those kind of individual teething problems that the government can just throw money and warm bodies at um, will likely make a far larger difference um, with, and whether these are occurring in the UK market or in foreign markets. The UK government can champion you to address individual regulatory customs and implementation issues abroad as well. Um, you know, if an if an export, if your partners are finding that an export license for wine is just far too painful to um, attain in South Africa, um, that's something the government can actively lobby um, the the South African government to address. All these kind of like granular things where the government can kick a goal for for you and your colleagues, um, I think will make a much much bigger difference than these kind of global geostrategic giant FTAs. Um, that tend to firstly not do all that much, but secondly not do all that much for a sector like yours, which isn't part of a very very long complex value chain um, or a or a hugely services integrated um, production line. Thank you. Right. Um, I'm conscious that there are other countries in the world other than the UK, as much as we don't always talk about them. So otherwise, in, in wine news, um, the Australia-China dispute of recent uh, weeks uh, with tariffs suddenly being slapped on, um, I wanted to get a few of your thoughts on it. Um, I suppose from a broader perspective, do you think it was a mistake inviting China to the World Trade Organization? Um, uh, how do you think trade with China uh, from Australia and elsewhere should be conducted going going forward? Um, and what do you think the um, immediate ramifications of, of their uh, tariffs and, and, and trading dispute will, will be? Uh, it's, a, it's a nice and concise set of uh, questions, Robert. Um, <laughs> I, I am aware that some of these are kind of big and, and possibly inflammatory, so like, to take it away. <laughs> 
Yeah. Um, so, so, so kind of let's let's begin to start. Was it a mistake to invite China into the World Trade Organization? I don't believe uh, it was. Um, I think you can argue you can argue that the conditions put upon them uh, as part of their membership should have been stricter in terms of how they um, the relation we we should have kind of predicted that. Uh, this kind of interrelationship between the state and individual firms could uh, distort markets in a way that they don't in the West. Maybe we should sort of the conditionality should have been stronger. Um, but this sort of argument that we should have kept them outside of it and that that would make things better. Um, I'm always sort of going, well, if we accept that argument, are you saying we, we should have kept 700 million people in poverty in order to like protect the steel industry in the EU and US 15 years later, that doesn't seem um, doesn't seem like a super equitable trade-off. Uh, and secondly, it kind of assumes that keeping them out of the WTO would have prevented China's rise as a massive player in global markets. And I find that hard to believe. Um, uh, I'm, uh, I think that the China was going to be um, a, a huge part of our lives uh, and kind of global trade, whether we invited them into WTO or not. And at least this way, you know, China tends to abide by appellate body rulings and they at least, you know, make it, make an effort to appear um, law-abiding in some ways. Um, so, so on that score, I, uh, I, I'm not one of the people who thinks it was a huge mistake. And I think that things like the decline of manufacturing in the West had a lot of factors of which the China shop was just one. Um, so that's kind of the, the, the first part of the, your question. Um, on kind of the Australia, the Australia-China dispute, um, and specifically as it pertains to wine, because I think this is a broader conversation, um, the, the dynamics between Australia and China are quite interesting in that Australia is absurdly dependent on exporting to China uh, economically. Um, in the sense that China absorbs in a given year well over 50% of our total exports, sometimes close to, to 65-70% uh, by value. Um, that's not hugely normal. Um, but at this, so so on the one hand, that is that effectively means that Australia's balance of trade and, and economy is very much dependent on, on one country and one country that frankly, has made it clear that it will weaponize that dependency to achieve its broader non-trade objectives, uh, including uh, effectively punishing criticisms of its political regime um, and its human rights regime. Um, on the flip side of that is that if you look at the composition of that 70%, um, a huge bulk of it is iron ore. Um, Iron ore, which China badly needs because it is its its growth model depends on ceaseless construction, um, and, and they literally just need iron beams, um, steel beams, um, and secondly because they can't readily get it from anywhere else. Um, there, there isn't there isn't enough iron ore anywhere to replace the Australian supply. Um, so you have this weird situation where China wants to punish Australia. Um, Australia doesn't want to be punished, but China can't punish Australia in the one way that would 
really hurt because that would be too damaging to the Chinese economy. And so instead, they target smaller but politically kind of iconic or what have you sectors. And this is where wine, stuff like wine gets hit because wine is a somewhat fungible commodity to an extent. There are There's a lot of competition in the wine sector from all over the world. Um, and so this is, this is one of the reasons that the wine and higher education got hit because the Chinese looked at it and went, we can really hurt this sector, which will cause the Australian government pain and cause them to potentially rethink some of their political decisions um, and, and some of their trade decisions on, on anti-dumping. Um, and, but at the same time, we won't be hugely hurting our consumers who can ultimately drink you know, Chilean wine, French wine, what have you. It'll be maybe a price hit or a decrease in quality or a selection, but they'll, they'll manage. Um, so that's kind of what's going on. Did Australia make a mistake in, in its pronouncements? Um, I personally, honestly, don't think so. Um, I don't think it is sustainable to pretend that Australia as a country doesn't have the values it holds in order to try to maintain the goodwill of the Chinese Communist Party. Um, as well as if you look at some of the complaints that the Chinese raised when they imposed some of these tariffs, some of them included things like Australian think tanks criticized China. Um, and so if you kind of look at the implication of that, in order to address that, the Australian government would have had to somehow police what independent non-governmental think tanks like the Lowy Institute write about you know, the, the Uyghur situation. Um, I don't think that's a, that's a sensible road to go down. Um, so, so is Australia making a mistake? No, I don't think so. Speaking more broadly, do you, when do you think it's appropriate for countries to start implementing tariffs, trade barriers, economic sanctions in response to humanitarian issues? That's a, that's a really that's a really big question. Um, generally speaking, in uh, and perhaps one more suited for sort of human rights watch than me, um, but uh, generally speaking, in sanctions, in terms of kind of sanctions generally, um, we have moved uh, as a kind of global society, we have moved away from national sanctions and towards very targeted sanctions, uh, often at the individual level. Precisely because when you are talking about, for example, implementing a tariff uh, or a embargo or a sanction on an entire country, you are always, when contemplating that, faced with the reality that who are you really hurting? Um, you know, if um, if you feel very strongly about, um, say, human rights in China, and you implement an embargo that prevents the exportation of um, cars from China, then the likely outcome is that a whole bunch of Chinese automotive workers um, lose their jobs. 
rather than are, are you going to change the calculus? Are you going to change the the outcomes for the decision makers who are um, who are in control of the the sort of human rights part of um, Chinese legislation? Probably, probably not. Um, gen- so, 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 so it's already tariffs and, and trade is quite a blunt tool um, and quite an untargeted tool to try to achieve human rights change in another country. Um, so that's kind of problem uh, problem one. Um, problem two is that once you go down that road, um, you have to constantly start reevaluating your own uh, kind of your own motivations and methods, as well as kind of how liberally you are applying that principle worldwide. Um, to what extent is your decision to uh, put tariffs on a specific country um, driven by the fact that you have a domestic industry and the products you would be applying a tariff on? Um, to what extent is your decision to apply tariffs on, say, China rather than, I don't know, Yemen, um, uh, driven by kind of the balance of trade and that kind of thing, um, or your political calculation. So it becomes very, very, very messy. Um, I think something something that policymakers have to come to terms with, and I don't know what you do about this, is that actually I don't think there are any tools sort of short of thermonuclear war in the toolbox of number 10 or even perhaps Brussels or Washington, D.C., that can make, for example, a country of the size and power of China or, say, the Russian Federation stop doing something it really wants to do. Um, the a, a, lot of, a lot of the time, these kind of human rights abuses occur because the because a government is taking steps that it considers necessary for its long-term survival um and that is a really hard art that is kind of a really hard self-justification to overcome with some import taxes what do you think of biden's presidency coming in it's particularly his speech today where he said that um interference from things like russia will no longer be tolerated um because obviously we had uh, Trump in for four years who did lots of things like putting massive or try to put lots of massive tariffs on European wine, uh, which in his defense was not the stupidest nor weirdest thing he did in his four years. But no. what do you think um, the Biden's presidency, do you think that's going to make uh, relations better because he's being kind of firmer and standing up to them? Do you think trade's going to be harder as a result? Where do you think this is um, going to go for international relations? Right. So um, it's quite an interesting transition because you kind of have to take it, the, the journey all the way back to, to even further history to understand the U.S. journey on trade and how we kind of get to where we are today. So it used to be that the U.S., while having you know very firm interests, had this calculus that it was willing to trade access to its market in exchange for everybody else signing up to the rules of the game that it designed, basically. That's how we got the World Trade Organization and the GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. It was the UK and the EU basically saying, we will let you sell us more stuff 
we will lower our tariffs much more than we're going to ask you other countries to lower yours. Um, but in exchange, you have to sign up to these international frameworks uh, and international trade rules. So that was the, the and the calculus for both the US and EU was if they could establish those rules of the game, it would be long, worth it in the long term. That kind of predictability would draw other countries to eventually lower their barriers anyway, and the predictability would be good for their businesses, their investors, and so forth. Um, for well before Trump, the US was very much souring on how that was working out. Um, the US looked at the situation and went, well, we lowered our trade barriers in exchange for these rules, but the rules aren't necessarily working the way we thought they would work. The rules don't cover a lot of the things our biggest geostrategic competitor, China, um, and to a lesser extent, like, you know, countries like India are doing. So that's not helpful. Um, and a whole bunch of, and we think a whole bunch of people are breaking them anyway. So well before Trump, the US was becoming much less enthusiastic about basically making unilateral sacrifices to keep global markets increasingly liberal and stable. Um, under Trump, they became, they went from kind of vocally supporting stability in the system, but having red lines almost everywhere on what they themselves were willing to do in, in the service of improving it, to just actively kind of hating it and actively almost undermining it. Um, so, so, so that is a change that will be reversed under Biden, but not all the way back to this kind of U.S. leads the free world into glorious liberalism. So you can see this tone, you know, one of the first things he did was um, uh, announce a kind of reshaping of the Buy America campaign, so um, says, uh, of the and the Make in America campaign um, to kind of change the way that the U.S. government procures uh, goods to make sure they're buying more uh, U.S. made stuff. Um, he rolled back the exemption from tariffs on the United Arab Emirates. So there's this definite sense that the Biden approach will be much calmer much more predictable. We're not going to be finding out about new trade policies on Twitter via sort of toilet-delivered missives. Um, so that's that's going to be a pleasant change. And he's not going to be actively antagonistic to the very principle of the system, um, to the very idea that we should have a stable, predictable um, sort of set of rules around how countries trade with one another. He's not going to be inimical to that the way that uh, Donald Trump and his US trade representative, Bob Lighthizer sort of were. Um, I think Biden and Catherine Tay will be much more, um, much more friendly uh, to the concept of the system, but they are still going to be incredibly firm in defense of US interests, um, including, you know, if, if that means that, um, if, the, if the Boeing Airbus decision uh, means that they can apply tariffs on EU goods, they won't just lift them for the sake of not being Trumpian. Um, they will keep those tariffs in place unless they feel it's in the U.S. interest not to do so. Okay, <laughs> that was uh, <laughs> that was quite a history lesson in three minutes. I like it. Um, <laughs> uh, it's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> so we wait, wait. Just thinking now, in terms of 
major developments in global trade, what do you think the big things coming in will be, um, either in terms of technology or infrastructure or political? Where do you think the big changes are going to come? Um, and do you think there's anything, are there any that you can see are going to be particularly pertinent to the drinks trade in the, the near future? So I think, uh, and COVID certainly uh, accelerated this a lot, but probably the biggest story by far is this kind of rise of e-commerce um, and the the fact that consumers in the West, at least, but really everywhere, increasingly expect that that I should be that they should be able to jump on their phones or jump on their tablets or PCs and get just about anything with four clicks brought to their house by a moped messenger within like 20 hours. Um, so that's kind of uh, that kind that kind of model, which is uh, an expectation of a much broader range of choice um, much more quickly. Uh, I think it is definitely the thing to watch for because uh kind of trade laws and government regulations haven't necessarily kept up with what that means. Um, you know, uh, I, uh, I talk sometimes to the, uh, to the industry representatives of the express carriers, um, and they have these vast, vast kind of customs and logistics uh, departments, and they say even they struggle to process and deal with the bureaucracy of moving small packages across borders where there isn't a small package exemption. So 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 basically, you know, uh, when when a $12 bottle of wine attracts $14 worth of paperwork, it, it ceases to be a, a viable international transaction. But you still see that all over the world. Um, and so right now, both at the WTO in every free trade agreement um, inside the the UN, inside the World Customs Organization, inside the OECD, there are ceaseless discussions about agreeing rules to make to try to make that process less painful and to standardize the way governments treat those kind of electronic um, ele electronically ordered, I suppose, and and then physically delivered. Uh, transactions, in addition to kind of all of this thinking about, okay, um, now that I can increasingly get my graphic design done in the Philippines from my office in Geneva, what does that change in terms of electronic commerce for services, you know, payment processing, electronic signatures, contracts across borders, all that kind of thing. Um, but that's almost a, a separate issue for you guys. Um, what I think is worth following for you is um, firstly, how are the legal frameworks um, evolving to, to try to deal with this push um, towards e-commerce and bespoke retailing, but also how um, the, whether it's the World Customs Organization or others are looking at technological solutions to try to facilitate that. Um, you know, the UNEC CFACT has done a ton of work on trying to use kind of blockchain solutions to, to make customs less painful and that sort of thing. Um, and so that's probably something to watch. It's not as sexy as talking about CPTPP versus like RCEP versus the rise of China. But in terms of what I think is going to make a difference to, to your members, I suspect that might be 
that might be where, where I'd look. Just one final one before I let you go. Um, where are the best online resources or others to look for information? Obviously, the government helplines don't work, so we won't try there. I find the websites <laughs> um, the websites aren't always terribly helpful either. Um, you're amazing to follow on Twitter, and I, I absolutely recommend everyone who's listening does. Um, where, where else should we be looking to get you know unbiased informed information on trade regulations um uh, technology those kind of things yeah sure so in terms of online for like online resources um and tools uh the uh there's something called the international trade center uh which is a joint wto um un body based here in geneva that has some absolutely amazing tools uh like the market access map um, and it's rules of origin calculator where you can literally just go, I would like to move, um, you know, wine from A to B from, uh, Burkina Faso to, to the United Kingdom. What are kind of the tariff rates? How much is moving? What are the rules of origin requirements? That kind of thing. Um, so I, I would very much recommend the ITC market access map. Um, there are also some great uh, some great consortiums in the uh, in the UK. Um, Robert Harvey, Dr. Jajuska, and the Jajuska are individual customs experts that put information out there, and um, in addition to tweeting a lot, uh, have some some great resources. Uh, the World Customs Organization's website, which uh, isn't the easiest thing in the world to navigate, but has all of the information somewhere in there if you dig hard enough. Um, it is great for things like customs classification and, and so on. But really for the um, for complex questions that are tied to the way that you do business, there really is no substitute for a customs professional, unfortunately. Um, so you can you can do what you can, but but if your if your challenge is hard, unfortunately, you're probably going to need some some advice, and at the moment, perhaps some expensive advice. Good. Well, it's nice to know that Brexit has uh, meant that we haven't had enough of experts, so that's that's good to know. <laughs> um, right. Well, listen, I'm, I'm conscious of time, so um, I can't thank you enough for all of that. You've given far more information than I was even hoping for, um, and really helped me understand a lot of things, and I'm sure for a lot for for our listeners. So, thank you so much. You're welcome. And I'm so sorry, nobody ever finishes a conversation with me about Brexit feeling better than when they sat down. That, that's been consistent. So you don't need to feel you don't need to feel like I've signaled you out. I oh, know. Well, I don't feel better about Brexit, <laughs> but I, I feel like I feel better about understanding it. So that's that I'm grateful for. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much, Robert. Cool. Thank you so much for your time. Cheers. Cheers.